0: Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Professor Stephen Fine. Professor Fine holds a BA in Religious Studies from the University of California, Santa Barbara, an MA in Art History and Museum Studies from the University of Southern California, and also a PhD in Jewish History from the Hebrew University. Professor Fine joined the faculty of Yeshiva University in 2005 as Professor of Jewish History and served as Chair of the Department of Jewish History. In 2015, Professor Fine was awarded the Dean Pinchas Schurgen Chair in Jewish History at YU. Professor Fine is the founding director of the Yeshiva University Center for Israel Studies and the Arch of Titus Project. Professor Fine's works include, but are not limited to, this holy place on the sanctity of the synagogue during the Greco Roman period, art and Judaism in the Greco Roman world, Jews, Christians, and polytheists in the ancient synagogue, art history and historiography of Judaism in Roman antiquity, the menorah from the Bible to modern Israel, and much, much more. And today we will be discussing the fascinating topic of. Ancient Synagogues of the Diaspora. Um, And again, Professor Pine, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it very much. I'm so happy to be with you, Ari. Thank you. Uh, Just to get started briefly, synagogues, such a part of our lives today, Jewish life. When did they become a part of Jewish life and observance?
1: Um, We first start hearing about synagogues in the first century, of the Christian era. Now that's where we start hearing about them. We hear about them in Josephus. We hear about them in the New Testament. We hear about them in Chazal descriptions of the first century, how the ancient rabbis looked at the first century and archeological finds that have come out over the last hundred and something years have shown that there were these places called synagogues all over the land of Israel and, and then possibly west into the um, Roman world. Now, when I say that, the reason I can call it a synagogue is because there's an inscription from Jerusalem that was found uh, in the city of David at the turn of the 20th century that belonged to a fellow named Theodotus. Now, Theodotus, believe it or not, is a perfectly good Jewish name. It means someone who is strict, observant of God, Um, It's one of those Jewish names like Theodore, Gift of God, that was really popular back then. And his father's name was Venetos, and it's a Greek inscription. And here's the important part. Theodotos was a synagogue leader and a priest. The son of a synagogue leader, the grandson of a synagogue leader. Now, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70, which means the stone has to come before 70, which pushes us either deep or less deep into the first century BCE. Now, what did they do in these places? Well, the inscription says that they studied in these places, and it was a place for guests to come. It was meaning pilgrims from overseas, and there was a mikveh there. Um, The synagogue hasn't been found, but the stone has. Um, But the reason I start there is because that's firm evidence and it uses that word you started with, Ari, um, synagogue, sunagoge, a place of coming together, which in Chazal became Beit HaKnesset, the house of assembly. Now, origins are a tough business because no one walked into the Beit HaMikdash and put a bunch of theses on the wall and said, we are now breaking away and creating the synagogue like Martin Luther ended up doing by accident with the Protestant church. Um, so we don't know when this starts, but it's one of those Hori antiquity things that existed clearly after the coming of uh, the Greek notion of paideia, of study and culture being an essential part of life, and the Greek notion of uh, associations of like-minded people, whether they be diaspora people or craftsmen. Uh, and this was the Jewish piece of that but it was so well established by the first century that josephus and the new testament and chazal suggest that it was founded by moses which means we think it's really old and important
0: Um, shifting to to our specific topic in synagogues of the diaspora starting with sardis in turkey Um, A little background about the history of the Jewish community there first.
1: Well, Sardis is the largest synagogue ever discovered. It's the size of a basketball court. It could hold maybe a thousand people. It's a synagogue located next to the Great Public Baths on on the western side of the city of Sardis. Most people haven't heard of the city, except that it's one of the cities of the apocalypse of the New Testament. Uh, so there was a Jewish community there by the late first century. Um, Josephus describes how Jews had special rights in this city, because they had been there for a long time, to assemble and have a place of assembly and keep their law. Um, Jews had lived in Sardis as long as anybody lived in the diaspora. It's about 70 or, I guess, 90 kilometers inland from Izmir. Uh, and a wonderful place to visit, first of all. Now, their synagogue, the building that you can go visit today, was uh, purchased by the Jewish community in the fourth century or so. It was a huge room, a basilica, next to the public baths. The Jewish community bought it, put in new mosaics, covered the walls with marble, put in two Torah shrines, put a big table in, and voila, synagogue. But there's something else I can tell you about these people. They weren't Julius Caesar. They weren't hugely wealthy. They were wealthy, but they weren't wealthy beyond what people on the low patrician side could present. Because how do I know that? The Torah arcs that you can see there, and they're behind my back, um, which which, um, are different. You can see one of them has... Red columns that come from Egypt, periphery. The other one has white columns. The gables are different. They're really a mix and match piece, sort of like building with blocks. They took stones from other buildings and bought them and constructed their own Torah arks. And so they literally furnished this space beautifully, but with used furniture. And that's an important thing to remember. It's sort of like a community taking over A church like the Bialystoker synagogue in New York, where they took over a church and voila, painted the ceilings and put in the ark and it turns into a synagogue, or a community that buys an old Sears Roebuck and turns it into a uh, Christian church complex. We're dealing with that level of culture in a city where we now know from the inscriptions that there were non Jews who donated to the synagogue, people who were counselors in the city council. There were uh, people who donated, who called themselves Teobases, God-fearers, which meant non-Jews who sort of hung on to the Jews, whether they took Jewish customs or whether they just liked them isn't clear. And so it was a cosmopolitan, interesting place, in a place where you sort of least expect it. You'd expect it to find something like this in Alexandria, where there was the great synagogue described by the rabbis or in Antioch where the rabbis were constantly going to confer with the governors or in Rome of this period. And there are synagogues in Rome, but nothing this big anywhere other than Sardis. And here's something else to remember, Ari. It was not like many other synagogues attacked by Christians in the fifth and sixth centuries. Remember paganism was destroyed by the church starting in the, 5th century late 4th 5th century taking over the temples turning them into churches taking people's holy stones and turning them into streets and then making them walk on it that happened in gaza it was a horrific cataclysm synagogues weren't as affected as all of that but there were some that were taken over and burnt and christians talk about it and jews we have a pew about it we have a liturgical poem about it um, and there's some archaeological evidence. Uh, Sardis was not taken over. Sardis um, was destroyed in an earthquake in the 6th century. Or sorry, the 7th century. Um, we know that because when the walls that had tumbled were lifted, they found people who were smashed by the falling rocks when this horrible earthquake happened. And there's no markings in the synagogue of um, Christian takeover, which is really interesting.
0: Why was it built so large? Was that typical of, of other synagogues? It sounds like it wasn't. Was it because it was a large population or was it, this was the only game in town. So they built, built it as big as possible so everybody can come.
1: Well, I, um... The great thing about ancient history is that the most important three words to know is "I don't know." But let me give you some context now that I said that. Okay, the rabbis describe a great synagogue in Alexandria. Joseph uh, Philo describes it as well. Um, the rabbis describe it as having a center aisle and then two side aisles on either sides. Stav lifni They called it doublastaton in Greek. It's a Greek word that only shows up in rabbinic literature um that synagogue as it's described by the rabbis is actually a projection of a great basilica on the temple mount the temple mount synagogue or meeting place transported if you will to alexandria but it's the case that there was large there were large jewish institutions called synagogues in alexandria in the first century okay now There was another one about the same time as Sardis, destroyed about the same time, and it's in Gaza. Now, the synagogue in Gaza didn't have as large a footprint, but it had two stories. And there's a scholar who imagines that it could hold 3,000 people. It was lavishly built with expensive mosaics, with biblical themes on them, with uh, screens covered with gold. These places in the larger cities, clearly, Jews built large monumental synagogues. We've got two of them. The one in Gaza is ignored because it was so poorly preserved. And, you know, you're not going to go visit it today. So it's not at the front of people's cognizance. Um, But we now have two huge synagogues. The difference is that the synagogue in Gaza was purpose built. It was built as a synagogue. The synagogue at Sardis was a big room next to the public baths with a nice atrium that the Jewish community bought, sealed off all the doors that led into the public baths, opened a door on the other side onto the street so that you could get to the synagogue without even noticing the baths, and existed for hundreds of years.
0: Do we have any sense from any of the inscriptions as to? The structure of the synagogue in terms of the today, you know, typical American synagogue, rabbi, perhaps a cantor, educational director, youth director. Do we have any sense of who ran the synagogue's official uh, uh, official positions in, in Sardis?
1: I once gave a multiple choice test at Yeshiva College. I don't do those often. And one of the questions was, what were the functions of the ancient synagogue? Now, there was one wrong answer. The first one was, there are these people called archosynagogai. Archosynagogos is a Greek word which means synagogue leader. Okay? In, in Chazal talk, it's called an archon. Okay? So, were these synagogue leaders? Now, there were also teachers of the law. We have one of those at Sardis. There were also um, communal leaders. Priest had some status, but not overriding status, meaning Kohanim. Um, in Eretz Yisrael, we not only have the Archa Synagogos, but we have the um, Chazan. Now, when we talk about Chazan today, we mean the guy who sings, right? But then it meant the guy in charge of the space. It didn't necessarily mean that he led the prayers, And then there was the fourth question, a Shabbos morning Kiddush. That was the wrong answer. Why? Because what we expect of a modern synagogue should be put aside when we deal with anything pre-modern and certainly ancient. In other words, these were community centers, but they shouldn't be read lock, stock, and barrel backwards from us to them um no there was no kiddish yes there was torah reading we don't know what kind of prayers went on in the diaspora were they in greek was there a little hebrew there's a little hebrew at sardis but not a lot um at Dura Rokos in uh, on the border of uh, syria and the persian empire in modern syria um there's a prayer text in hebrew that was found right outside the synagogue when well, that's cool that looks a lot like birkatamazon um we don't know very much, and we have to treat these buildings as local phenomena that are part of a larger intercommunal, worldwide phenomenon. It's sort of like I, I always describe synagogues as sort of like McDonald's, right? There's the golden arches wherever you go. There's golden arches. Well, wherever you go, you're gonna find Torah shrines and menorahs, and maybe a guy called us arches synagogos, um, and. Of people probably who have Jewish sounding names, biblical names, but not necessarily. Um, and that's about as far as it can go. In other words, different places as today do it differently. You know, I grew up in a small community in, when I was a kid in San Diego. And uh, you couldn't tell the difference between a free conservative and an Orthodox synagogue. Except the Orthodox synagogue had this plexiglass separating the women from the men. Um, you couldn't, and you know, if you walk into these places, you would see that the conversations and the people are really very similar and their concerns were really very similar. Um, but if you watch their prayers, the conservative and the Orthodox look more more or less alike, except that of course the conservative had a parking lot and the Orthodox didn't. And the reform was often a different place. But when I sent students at the University of Cincinnati to the various synagogues in Cincinnati, they would come back and inevitably talk about the Torah service, carrying the Torah, the piety that went with it, the reading of the scroll. And sometimes I couldn't tell whether they were telling me about the, the most reformed synagogue in town or Chabad. That unifying Jewish klaus Yisrael thing, despite division, now that might sound obvious that Jews have a lot in common from place to place, but living in our world, we know that's not true. And part of what my academic work does is stress the shared across the distance while acknowledging the difference as opposed to some others for whom the difference is most important rather than the shared.
0: You had mentioned that that um, there were contributors who who were non-Jewish to the Sardis synagogue. What do we know from the synagogue or elsewhere about the relationship between Jews and non-Jews in that period in Sardis, uh, number one? And were there other houses of worship, religious places of gatherings that were non-Jewish in Sardis?
1: The Jews were a little minority in sorts. Okay. Okay. Um, by the there were huge temples, and by the fourth century, um, the press. Right into the fifth. They were put, the Christians were putting pressure on those small. On the excuse me, let me back up. By the fourth century, the Christians were putting pressure on those polytheistic institutions, uh, taking them over in the fifth and sixth. Some turning some of them into churches or, or flattening them. So, by the fifth century, we find um, Christians taking over. And, and in a stone that was found at a place called Laodicea, we actually have a menorah on a column that someone smashed a big cross over. That's the proof. That's the smoking gun that I was always looking for. And one of my contacts in Turkey found it for me and said, you've got to go see this. we were sitting on cell phones and he was saying, turn left over there by the column on the right and then you'll find it. And I published it. Now in Sardis, we have community leaders, counselors, uh, wealthy Jews who are goldsmiths, wealthy Jews who were part of the civil administration. We have all those things. We have god a God-fearer who gave a menorah, and then the same God-fearer um, without that title, God-fearer. In other words, we find maybe he converted, maybe he didn't use the title, maybe it's two guys with the same name, right? But we find a great deal of interaction at a place called Aphrodisias, which is farther east. There's a column that was found that says these are the names of the God-fearers that donated to the synagogue or to the community kitchen, colon, these are the names of the Jews that donated. In a place called Miletus, there's a theater. And in it, there's an inscription that says, place of the Jews and the god So they had their own front row seats, or back row seats, really. But they had place in the theater of their very own. In other words, the level of contact over this long period changed in different ways Look, there's a fellow, uh, according to an inscription, who backtracked from Christianity and became a pagan, and they put him into an insane asylum for a number of years. This was a harsh culture once it became an Orthodox Christian culture. If you weren't Orthodox Christian, Jews were tolerated because of all sorts of theological reasons and Roman legal reasons. Before the rise of uh, the Christian Empire, however, we find that um, for centuries um, interactions of all sorts happened. Was it always positive? No. You know, there was this temple in Jerusalem that got destroyed in seventy. But not in every community, not in every place. We have to read each place separately and not do this. Um, you know, the Gentiles did this to us. The Gentiles did that to us. There's no such thing as the Gentiles. There are local communities and periods, and we have to assess each moment for, for relationship. But at Sardis, um, we have a building that we don't know what they said. We have no show bulletins, right? We don't know if they felt pressure from the church. We don't know what the relationship with the government was. We don't know. But I can tell you that for some of the great temples that were built in Germany, say the great, uh, the, let me just back up. For one of the for, for some of the great temples that were built in Germany, um, there were great problems. Local communities not wanting to give Jews front row seat on Main Street. How much space do Jews get? How much frontage do they get on the street? So they built these great big beautiful buildings, but there's always something hovering underneath. And we know that's the case because the Jews wanted to assert themselves in twentieth century nineteenth century Germany. And as a way of uh, erasing that, they were all destroyed in one night on Kristallnacht, or many of them, right? And so that was clearly a symbol for everybody that Jews had made it in Germany. Going back to Sardis, I don't know what relations were over this long period, because I don't have evidence. But non-evidence does not constitute evidence most of the time. So it could have been very negative, and I wouldn't even know it. But I can tell you that bo- the building wasn't touched.
0: Are there still excavations going on around at Sardis or around Sardis? And what are perhaps some recent discoveries that have been made?
1: Um, they're always digging the city of Sardis, going back to the Iron Age and earlier, and going through the Roman period. They excavated right next to the synagogue a huge street with a tr- with a triumphal arch spanning it right next to the synagogue and um a road that went from Izmir all the way to the eastern empire that went right past the synagogue in Sardis you could like stand in front of the synagogue and wave as people were traversing the world which is how of course Jews would get there from east and west um and why it was such an interesting place to be where today unless you happen to be traveling in in Turkey and want to get from point A and point B to point B in Turkey, you don't go. But but this was a major, major thoroughfare across the empire that continued west and then onto the sea. Um, one of the cool things that was found um, in the field, meaning in the dirt, when that area was being discussed, uh, dug up, was an inscription. And the inscription uh, is a is a dedication by someone um, to the Holy house. Now, I have an inscription that describes the synagogue as a synagogue, synagogue, um, as a place with a big fountain, they call it the synagogue fountain. And then the internal Jewish term, which is ha- um, hagios oikos. No, I did it wrong, oikos hagios. Fix that. We. Um, at the uh, Oikos Hagios, the holy house, the Jews came together. They put Torah arts in. They built big, beautiful menorahs that they lit to illuminate the place. They had own lamps on the ceilings. And they did whatever liturgical stuff they did. Now, why is that so important? Well, let's go on with the inscription. The last line is Shalom al Yisrael. Now, the guy who carved it did not carve Hebrew as well as he carved Greek. But we find that phrase all across the Roman world uh, on a basin from, uh, from Spain, on two, on two markers, everywhere. It's one of those phrases that Jews used to mark that they were Jewish. It's sort of like going to a Jewish cemetery today and with people who know no Hebrew, but it says Shalom on the tombstone. And that sort of marks out that it's a Jewish space. So I don't know how much people could read it or not, but they wanted to have that Hebrew there. And then they're referring to their synagogue as a holy house, which is super important because the synagogue is a holy house at Sardis. The synagogue is, a, is the most holy house at Sida, which is another place in Turkey. The synagogue is a holy place all over the land of Israel. We have oodles of inscriptions that refer to the synagogue as a holy place. Um, in my dissertation book, um, I called it, uh, this holy place, which is a translation of the Aramaic, Hade Kedisha. Um, I used the term that appears in so many of these inscriptions as sort of a title for the composition. If you saw a great painting and didn't know its title, you wouldn't know what it is necessarily, especially if it's modern art. Here I have ancient Jews giving me a title. We have built a holy place. And so the job is, what makes it holy? Now, we didn't have such an inscription from Sardis until the 90s, and it was published, and then I made a big fuss over it why because it provides a connection to other jewish communities and it gives me a rubric for understanding this one and what they were thinking about when they created that amazing environment for themselves in a reused space with reused furniture right which they then made their own which i find a compelling conversation Now, if you go to Sardis today, the synagogue, you'll see a great big roof that was just put on it. Um, The excavations are carried out by a team from Harvard University. Um, They put the roof on to protect the floor. It was a big deal in Turkey. Um, It was covered in all the press. They put the roof over the synagogue. Um, So I hope people will go and and visit because it's an amazing, amazing site.
0: Are the inscriptions um, obviously in, in, in Greek? And in Hebrew, um, anything in Aramaic that's been preserved
1: that that was found? Not there. there. And there's very little Hebrew. Um, And it was all found near one of the Torah arts. So I think that has to do with the sanctity of that area within the synagogue. But I I can't prove it. It just could be haphazard that they were found there. Because what happened was that after the synagogue fell down, um, people came and took the stones and used them to build other buildings. Sound familiar? Just as the people at Sardis had taken stones from other buildings that had been taken apart. Or they took the stones and turned them into lime uh, and made cement out of them. So we only have a small percentage of the inscriptions that once existed. And even those were highly fragmentary and had to be put together. I Ooh. point out that the final report of the Sardis synagogue is coming. Uh, we just finished it. I wrote the part, the historical essay. Uh, which was supposed to be twenty pages and ended up at eighty or ninety, um, thanks to COVID. Um and it's gonna come out, I hope, next year. Excellent. Do we
0: do we have any sense as to what the Torah scrolls were like in, in these ancient synagogues? Like you know, would we recognize them? I mean, there's there's scrolls. I mean, would we recognize them in terms of you know lifting it up or closed, like
1: you know, in a closed structure? If you go to the Dura Roku synagogue from, uh, that was built uh, around 244, 245, and destroyed in 256, um, there's an image of a guy holding a Torah scroll up. And it's about the size of his forearm. And yes, he's touching the scroll. And reading through the scroll that he's holding up, you can see the script coming through the other side of the manuscript, which anybody who knows old Torah scrolls know that's, knows that's pretty common. To be able to look from one side of the scroll to the other and see the script, but the artist wanted you to see the script is the point. Um, the scroll is about the size, again, of his forearm, which no Roman scroll was ever any bigger than that. If you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, they can be, you know, eighteen inches tall. Maybe that's that's a tall one. Okay. Um, there was a scroll found uh, in the Engedi synagogue that was just recently. Uh, opened it was completely charred and they were able to scan it and take the text off and they found it was a book of uh Leviticus we have images of Torah scrolls from um, all over the empire from Sardis we have an image of, a, of three scrolls stacked up inside an ark laying down from Rome we have the same image in a lot of places but the important piece is that they're laying down and so that famous rabbinic comment about which scroll do you stack on top of which? What book can you put on top of which? Um, so can you, put a Torah, can you put the book of a single Torah scroll on top of, of a, a single book of the Torah on top of a Torah scroll? The answer is no, it has less sanctity. Can you put the Book of Prophets on top of a Torah scroll? No. Can you put the Book of Prophets on top of the book of, not a book of, of uh, the Hypeographer of Ketuvim? Well, yes, but that has less sanctity. And so it's a way of asserting sanctity. That only makes sense when you see these Torah arcs, like in Rome, where they're actually on shelves, stacked. Um, our Torah scrolls tend to be vertical in cases, whether it be a sparty teak, which goes back to a uh, Quran case. They pick that up from there. Um, or uh, the cloth that Ashkenazim use. We tend to set them in vertically. But in the ancient world, they set them in the arcs horizontally. And that's important. And so um, in figuring out whether these are Torah shrines, the ones behind me and the ones in a synagogue near Rome called, uh, at a place called Ostia Antica, I literally sat with a tape measure to figure out if scrolls would fit laying down in that space. And the answer was yes.
0: You had mentioned the Dura Europis from Syria, just a, a little bit about that when it was built, where it was located, and um the wall painting covers in that
1: synagogue? The Dura synagogue is the is a house synagogue. It's a private house that was converted into, into a Beit Knesset. It's sort of a stiba. It's a very small room. Now it was converted in a house next to the city wall of a city that is called in Persian Dura and in Greek, Aeropolis So we call it Dora Aeropolis It's on the trade route between Babylonia and Palmyra. So if you're one of those rabbis who went back and forth between Eretz Israel and Bavel, those Nehutai guys, you were likely to stop in Dora or one of the similar places along the path. Now, the synagogue there is on the border between Syria and Iraq, overlooking the Euphrates River. The only reason it exists is that it was on the western side of the city where the city wall was because there was no cliff on that side as there were on the other three sides. And so it was a big city wall. And so they built their synagogue inside a house by the city wall. And when the Persians attacked in 256, they filled the synagogue with dirt in order to protect the city. In other words, as a support for the city wall. Okay. Okay. Now, down the street from the synagogue was a, a Christian building, a small one called even smaller called uh, what, a house church right? and a Mithraim, a small temple for a um, pagan cult so small religions tended to uh, live in these houses along the city wall okay so when they found the Dura Europos synagogue, quite by accident, uh, they found a sixty percent of a of the wall paintings intact anything that was covered with dirt survived it's built in three tiers of numerous biblical stories retold at the centerpiece of the room is a huge Torah shrine which is called a Beit Arona a shrine of the ark which connects it to the ark of the covenant Using the word ark, which, you know, Hazal didn't use the word ark until the third century as well. Before that, they called the box for the Torah a teva, a cabinet. And so, this, what I called in my dissertation, um, templeization, this bringing in of temple metaphors to the synagogue, you can see already there. Um, the wall paintings were such a surprise when they were discovered because Europeans had developed the very odd, strange notion that Judaism is a religion that doesn't like art. It even became genetic. Jews can't do art, which meant that Jewish humanity was at stake in whether Jews did art or not. That's why great collections like the Jewish Museum and the Israel Museum and the archeological excavations all over Israel were, were carried out, not just because they wanted to find cool stuff and collect cool stuff, but they needed a canon of Jewish art because every nation has art, right? Americans have art, but it's a constructed thing, American art. Germans have art. Well, it wasn't even a country until the late 19th century. And so they really had to construct it. And so if Germans don't have art, but want to assert theirs, it must be that the German alter ego, the Jews don't have art either. And so some German philosophers said, well, that's a good thing because that makes them like us, good Protestants. And then other German philosophers said, that's a bad thing. They're not really a people. And so Jewish peoplehood, Jewish humanity, depended upon discovering Jewish art. It was a major, major issue. Um, remember that in the 19th century, Jews had no rights, and they were considered less than human by many people. Not having art was the last of the dehumanizing factors. Jews aren't militarists. They can't fight in an army, right? So Jews went in the army. Jews don't have bodies that are physical, so Jews became physical, right? They built JCCs. <clears throat> The art issue was part of that larger piece. So when the synagogue at Dora showed up in 1932, it was, wow. Here's this amazing colored space with vibrant images of everything from the saving of Moses from the sea to Moses crossing the, I'm sorry, the saving of Moses from the river to Moses crossing the sea to Mordechai and Esther. A whole range of imagery. The Torah literally projected through the eyes of Midrash onto the walls. Jews don't do that. Somebody described it like Aladdin's lamp had been rubbed. And this thing came out that no one expected. Except, of course, those Jewish culturalists who were arguing that there was Jewish art since the late 19th century. Who said there was such a thing and there must be such a thing. And then here, hope it comes out of the ground. So Dora was hugely important. And is still hugely important. It brought Jewish art into the world conversation about art and visuality. There's something else cool about the synagogue. It has Aramaic inscriptions on the wall. It has Aramaic labels for the images like Moshe Kad Bazayama, Moses when he split the sea. Or over a, a priest, it says Aaron in Greek so you wouldn't think he's a pagan priest. Or donors who wrote their names on inscriptions in various ways. So those are the Aramaic and the Greek inscriptions. But there's a whole crew of Persian inscriptions that people came in and wrote on the walls. When so-and-so came to the synagogue and looked at it, he said this was cool, essentially, right? Um, look, looking at the scene of uh, Ezekiel's dry bones. The resurrection of the dead, says on the walls. right? Praise be God. You can hear them coming into their Beit Knesset and responding to it by reading the graffiti. But until I paid attention to it, it wasn't paid attention to. Yeah, it was in the back of the publication, but it was in the back of the publication. And no one paid any real attention until I realized that that Aramaic, that Persian stuff was, in fact, um, the first commentary on the paintings after the artists themselves. Now, is Dura unique? No, it's not says uh, in the Yerushalmi, in a fragment from the uh, Taruk in the days of Rabbi Yochanan, they began to paint on the walls, and they didn't stop them. Now, people were painting on walls, whether in their homes, whether in their synagogues. We have discussions of murals in Chazal. Let me give you an example. There's no rock like our God. But the word sur is also the word sayar, to paint. And so it goes on. There's no painter like our God. There's no artisan. A painter can make a painting on the wall, but he can't make it alive. Only God can make it alive. And so they're seeing these things. They're thinking about these things. And at Dura, they were making these things. But it clearly wasn't just a local phenomenon. We're in a synagogue in the middle of nowhere that has four different languages on the border of Eretz Israel and Babel with Jews going back and forth who speak Aramaic, Greek, and Persian, right? Um, With a Hebrew prayer text that was found there. I was at a conference once at the Getty Museum and a major scholar raised his hand and said, do you know of a building anywhere in the Roman world with more languages than that one? And no one in the room could come up with one. In other words, this is a really important touchstone for thinking about the spread of Gothic literature, the development of the synagogue, uh, what biblical art could look like before Christianity started doing it, really, um, and what synagogues look like beyond this little town in the middle of nowhere. And last but not least, for the very humanity, humanness of the Jewish people.
0: So it's cool. Beyond um, wall paintings, murals, mosaics, do we ever find art that is more than one dimensional? Do we find multi-dimensional art that we can trace back to synagogues or other Jewish places of gatherings?
1: First of all, you're asking the rabbi question because the question in uh, the Bavli is whether you can put images and you can't and bias says, yeah, you can put flat ones. And remember in the synagogue of Yatev, which was in Babylonia, there was a statue of the, of the king, of the Satanian emperor and no one bothered it. Um, all we have are relief paint carvings, meaning bullet, right? That was sticks out of the, of the stone. And carvings of birds, of bird, of, uh, of lions. There are lions at uh, at Sardis, reused. There are lions um, from the synagogue at Chorazin. There's lions in a number of places in Eretz Israel uh, that serve that kind of heraldic function. Jews, it doesn't seem, made statues. But, you know... Really, neither did Nabataeans until the second century. This was a regional thing. Samaritans didn't do it either, and they were much stricter than Jews were on this business of images or not. Chazal found ways to to conceptualize images um, of two different sorts, those which were sacral and forbidden, and those which are some images, some sort of just images that, you know, it's a statue. So what? Um... Could you own it? Well, let me give you an example. If you have a cup with the image of a goddess of Tiche on it, and once been found, the goddess of the city with a crown on her head. Okay? Can you keep it? Well, the answer in the Yushami is yes. Because when you pour water over it to wash it, you're washing away any sense of sanctity it could have. Well, can you keep a cup that with a base that looks like a dragon? Yeah, well, sure, because you're just going to wash it. In other words, these people were not unsophisticated. Were they making it? Maybe craftsmen. Otherwise, they wouldn't be discussing these sorts of things. Maybe they're buying it. But an important thing to realize about Jewish art forever is that Jewish art is art applied to Judaism. It's not this genetic thing. So in the Middle Ages, you could have non-Jews making the rimonim under Jewish instruction, right? In antiquity, you could have non-Jews making a mosaic with Jews watching and telling them what to do. It's not the contractor who counts. There was no such thing as an artist in the ancient world. That's a Renaissance idea. The modern word for artisan is uman, which is the Hazal word for artisan. But in the 1910s or so, a word started to spread in Jerusalem, oman and omanut, which is different than uman and umanut. Now, an Oman is an artist. It's Michelangelo. It's Boris Schatz. That's an Oman. Somebody with, ins- with inspiration, right? In that modern sense that we didn't have anywhere in the world before the Renaissance. Um, And how do I know that? Because if you look in Eliezer Ben Yehuda's dictionary, under the word Omanut, art, it says art in a few different languages. It says art. It says kunst, right? It says translation. And then it says... A word that was recently developed and shows up in the the journals, in the magazines, in the newspapers. In other words, it's a brand new word that we tend to think is a brand old word. When we think of what we're dealing with as umanut, which is what it was, the sting of a lot of this stuff comes out of it. Because while Jews who grew up in Germany or in Lithuania and some of those yeshivish communities, which were very small, may not have been used to having paintings and lions and zodiacs and all that stuff in their synagogues. Well, if you went to Galicia or to many other places in Belarus, you'd see it everywhere. All the way into Germany. I was in the cemetery in Frankfurt last week. And in the cemetery at Frankfurt. Uh, there are tombstones with all sorts of images, including Adam and Eve and a dragon, just like the ones on the base of the Arch of Titus. In other words, or, or yet, a medieval um, Hanukkah menorah with a dragon above the words, ki ner mitzvah Torah or, for the lamp is a commandment, Torah is light. And no one thought twice. In other words, things that perturb today didn't always perturb it. If you come to our yeshiva and walk into the first building built, you will find a zodiac on the floor. Now, that zodiac is there because the first Jewish archaeologist, a fellow named Nachum Slush, before he became the first Jewish archaeologist, was exiled from Palestine during World War I and became professor of Jewish history, the first one at what became Yeshiva University. He became the advisor on archaeology for the new glorious yeshiva campus, only one building of which was built. Now, if you look at the first building at Y.U., you will see Assyrian influence and Gothic influence and Spanish influence uh, and Islamic influence. You'll find this building that brings together all of culture through architecture in that way that Y.U. wants to be as a center of Torah. And if you walk into this entryway of this building, you will find a zodiac on the floor. Okay, no one thought twice. Now, I used to think that there was a carpet over it because some rabbi got upset about it, right? And and I was sure that was the case. And everybody I knew was sure that was the case. And in fact, not so long ago, there's an image that some yeshiva boy went in and put tape over some high school kid because he found it offensive. It was immediately taken off and cleaned and restored. Well, if you want to know what people are really doing, do not ask the regular people, or don't even ask the ideologues sometimes, right? I went to the cleaning crews because I'd noticed that sometimes there was a carpet over the floor, and sometimes there wasn't. And they explained it to me. On snowy and rainy t- seasons, we put a carpet because it's slippery. When it's sunny, we uncover it, and we polish it because we have to protect it. And that's the truth. right? So no matter how people ideologize and discuss and think about and maybe walk into an ancient synagogue in the Islamic period and knock out the eyes on the on the mosaics, um, because everybody was doing that in the Islamic period. Um, every period is different. Every moment is different. And halacha is a living creation and, and is applied to the realities of what we see outside our windows. Would Rabbi Akiva have imagined a synagogue that looked like this? Maybe, but Moshe Rabbeinu wouldn't have. And we all know that famous Midrash of of Moshe Rabbeinu teaching, excuse me, of uh, Rabbi Akiva teaching and Moshe Rabbeinu showing up in his Beit Midrash. Well, imagine Rabbi Akiva teaching in a place like this and Moshe Rabbeinu showing up and going to Dora Ropos and seeing an image of Moshe Rabbeinu in his toga with a perfectly good Roman haircut. Because we always project ourselves onto our ancestors. Whether it's a painting there or whether it's a textbook printed in Munsee or in Alam shfu, we always look like our biblical characters and they always look like us. And that's the value of looking at all these images, seeing all the ways our ancestors have looked at themselves as they looked at Hazal, as they looked at the, the heroes of the Tanakh, and then look back at them. And you can have a conversation, a visual conversation. And for people like me who are so utterly visual, being able to see, to look in the Be'e Knesset, to look at the walls, isn't a way of, isn't a way of losing focus, it's a way of gaining focus. And so there are two trends through the through Chazal, through the Rishonim, into the modern period in dealing with art in the synagogue. There are those whose eyes get confused by too much stuff on the wall, right? And there are those for whom, if there's not stuff on the wall, if it's not beautiful, there's no hidor, there's no beauty in the Beit and they lose their focus. And that's an important message, I think, for, for all of us, because these ancient synagogues often show us options that our ancestors took um, that we can relate to, even though, as I said before, the past is a foreign country. We can go
0: on and on, we just, I think, covered just a little bit of this, this topic, and it's been absolutely fascinating, and um... Hopefully we'll be able to revisit this topic, expand on it, perhaps pick another topic in, you know, in in the future. And, I Fine, thank you so much um, for today's, uh, uh, not lecture, but entertainment, informative and entertaining. So again, thank you so much. We appreciate it very much. Thank
1: you. Well, Ari, thank you for inviting me. Thank you everyone for watching. And, um, Enjoy. And next time you walk into the Bay Knesset, I hope your eyes see something you might not have otherwise. Thank you.